0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 14, 13 through 33. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of these who ate was about five thousand men, besides women, When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed onto the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Hey, good morning. Well, I want to start today by asking you to do something that is a little painful, and that is, I'd like you to think back to a situation when you were really in need, when you were desperate for help. Maybe it's right now, maybe you have to think back a little bit. Maybe it was financial, maybe it was emotional, you're really scared and anxious, physical. Maybe it was something that was self-inflicted, some, something dumb you said or did and got yourself into a mess, or maybe it was something that was completely outside of you. I want you to think for a moment of a time when you were desperately in need. Maybe you're like me and you kind of want to block those things out, but I'm sure there have been those. And I want to ask you, what happened? And really, what did you need in that moment? That's the question. Well, I want that less than pleasant thought to hover around the heliport of your mind while we turn again to the wonderful gospel of Matthew as we continue our way walking through these stories. And last week, if you were here, you can go back and listen to it, or I can just tell you, we made it through the rather sickening story of Herod Antipas's ungodly palace feast that resulted in the death of the great prophet John the Baptist. And the reason I mention that here again is because our story flows right out of that. This time, we're going to see, as we just heard read, we have another feast, but this time in the wilderness we're also going to see that that report about John the Death's John the Baptist's death and Herod's awareness of Jesus is precisely what compels the events of our story. And I also finally want to remind you that this was a very intense time in history. You have some very immoral rulers ruling over people that really care about God and want to often overthrow them, and they want to throw off the shackles. It's a very revolutionary time. So these all of that is the background to the story we just read that I want you to understand. So our story starts, as you saw, and you can see in your bulletin there, with Jesus getting in a boat because he's wanting to get out of all of that. He's wanting to get away from Herod Antipas. He's wanting to get away from these zealous crowds that want to make Jesus king. And all the events of these, this story that we heard read, and we're going to look at it again here for a minute, all of it takes place in a really small area way up in northern Israel. There's like this chicken wing shaped piece of water that we call the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And, and it all takes place right around the top edge of it, on the northeast and the northwest sides of it. And what you have there is this beautiful lake, and there's beaches, small beaches, and then these rolling hills that go up, some of which have little villages in them. Others of them are just open um, as an open space. And so at the beginning of our story, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat, and they're heading across the lake to go to a place that's more withdrawn, to get away from the crowds, to get away from the tension. Undoubtedly, we can see in verse 13, that Jesus wanted some time to withdraw, to find some rest with his chosen disciples, to pray, to laugh, to talk, just to slow down. But what happens, we see in those verses, is that the, the massive crowds, they hear that Jesus, who has been healing them and teaching them and talking to them about the kingdom of God coming and being at hand, they're desperate, they're fascinated, and, and they are wanting to follow him everywhere he goes. So it's like a crowd chasing Taylor Swift or the Beatles, whatever generation you are, whatever it is. And so they see Jesus and the disciples get in a boat, so they take up the hymns of their robes, and they're running along the side of the lake watching him. Is that this boat out there? I think it is. Running along, trying to see where he's going to land, right? Right? And that's what happens. They eventually see the boat. They're just rowing along nicely, going on a retreat. They eventually see the boat turn in towards the land, and they can calculate where it's going to land. In verse 14, it says, when Jesus and his disciples came back to shore with their plans to go up onto the mountainside and relax, to get away, to pray, what did they find? They find these massive crowds waiting there for them. You know, it must be extremely tiring to be famous. (laughs) Think about that to feel like you can never be alone and that people are always wanting something from you and chasing you, also known as a stay-at-home mom or dad. Uh, You're very famous to your kids and always wanting something from you. But you can understand why celebrities would wear hats and dark sunglasses and build walls around their houses and often come across as aloof and distant because it's very tiring to always have people demanding something from you. But look at verse 14. It's so beautiful and important to see Jesus' response to this. It says, when he lands on the shore and gets out of the boat, with compassion for these people, he stops, he took time to touch them, to hear of their needs, to love them, to use his power to heal them, to deliver them from diseases and demons, to bless them. And we know from verse 15 that this went on all day long. All these crowds wanting him, such that when evening was approaching, his disciples, who are probably, again, simultaneously amazed and annoyed, they come to him and interrupt his healing ministry. And actually, I think you can hear in verse 15 a little bit of perturbance in their voice. They don't even address him as Lord as they usually do. They say, look at verse 15, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Remember, they just thought they were going on a retreat, right? Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, Jesus' response to them in verse 16 is very intriguing. He doesn't take offense at them. He doesn't take offense that, he's, that they're trying to give him direction. Instead, he says this in verse 16. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, that is very intriguing. It's actually an unexpected element in this story. If we were sort of retelling this story from memory, I bet we might easily forget that verse And it's actually not really clear what this verse means at this point. I think it'll make more sense when we get to the next story here in a few minutes. But we have to remember that Jesus has already taught them that God will provide for all their needs. And if you you think back to chapter 10, he has already given them power. He sent them out with the same power he had, it says, to heal people, to cast out demons. Um, And they've seen that God can provide for people. And now I think what's happening in verse 16 is that he sees all this need and he's inviting his disciples to step into that power that God can display and provide for the people through them, but they just can't see it. I think in this verse, Jesus is like a father who's trying to teach his sons how to use a circular saw or drive a car or something that is scary. I mean, if you're used to it, you forget how scary that is at first, and it feels overwhelming. And so here the disciples are. They see these massive crowds, 5,000 men and women and children as well, pressing around him, desperate to get to Jesus. The sun is setting. There's no food. It's getting restless. It's overwhelming. And so Jesus is drawing them into a deeper reality, I think, in verse 16, and a deeper understanding, but they just can't see it. And so their response to him is not, okay, we're going to trust God to do this. Their response is, we only have two, five loaves of bread and two fishes. What are we going to do? This isn't enough for even us to eat, let alone everybody else. And then what happens is truly miraculous. In fact, this is the only miracle miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. This one right here, the feeding of the 5,000 people. That's probably because it's so significant. Mark, Ma- Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all recount this story. And Matthew, like the others doesn't give us the mechanics. We don't don't know what happened. There's not some magical incantation that we can repeat or something. It's not a certain culinary technique. If you slice the bread just this way or fillet the fish this way, it'll go longer or something. It's not that all of a sudden everybody just realized, oh, we all need to share our lunches and everybody got their lunches out. Not at all. It's truly a miracle that we don't know what happened except for everyone ate. And we see in verses 20 to 21 that Jesus obviously multiplied this bread. He looks to heaven, he prays, and then you, we can see what happened is that he organizes the people and he starts to give bread and fish to the disciples and they're going to each of these groups and distributing it. It is truly a miracle. And you can imagine you know, the disciples going up to them and saying, okay, who ordered the fish and chips with a number two, right, with a Light sauce and onion rings. Okay, Josh, fat, fine, here it is. Right, so we don't know. I bet most of the people there didn't even know exactly what was happening. But we know that it was a miraculous multiplication of food. And we see that everyone got to eat, and it says in verse 20, actually ate enough to be satisfied. That's more significant than you might first think. Because most people in Jesus' day, you have to realize usually went to bed a little hungry every night. You know Food was not like it is for us. In the modern West, we're used to having so much food that the only time we ever feel bad about food is when we've eaten too much, right? And too much rich variety of food and drink. But to say that they ate and, and were satisfied really speaks to the super abundance of this provision. And it also speaks to a spiritual reality that the Psalms often talk about God satisfying his people. And this is this la- same language here. So it's a miracle. But our story actually doesn't stop there. Remember that Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds. He needed some time of rest and recuperation. He was God, but he was also fully human, and he needed to pray. He, Jesus needed to pray. And Matthew doesn't tell us the content of this praying, But undoubtedly, he was aware of his coming suffering and death, and he was looking to his heavenly Father for strength and comfort and wisdom, just like we need to. So, Jesus sends the crowd away. He's going to reboot this plan. He sends the crowd away, and he sends his disciples away. In addition to needing to be alone to pray, I think it's obvious, especially if you read the parallel story in John chapter 6, why it was so important for Jesus to disperse the crowds, because we know that they were planning to make him king. Their plan was to, I mean, after all, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. He's healing people. He's uh, performing exorcisms. He's providing food for them. Their plan, we know explicitly from John 6, was to make him king, probably to march into Herod's palace and knock him off his throne, to march all the way down to Jerusalem, maybe even all the way to Rome. They're going to make him the king. And as great as that may sound, Jesus knows this is not God's will for him at this time. God's will for Jesus at this time is to come into the world to bless those in need, not to break those in power, to heal the sick, not to build himself a throne, to suffer and die to rescue people from bondage to sin, not to be praised as a great king, and to be carried, certainly. But his body carried to a tomb, not on the shoulders of a crowd. In fact, when we see Jesus going alone to pray here, we should think of two other stories in Matthew that are all connected. One is back in the temptation in chapter 4, and the other is the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his ministry in chapter 26. And I think the same thing is happening here that Jesus looks to his heavenly father for direction and to realign his heart with the heavenly father's will for him. Because the very thing that Satan tempted him of back in the temptation, I think, is what is a temptation here and in chapter 26, that he would become king in this glorious, destroying way rather than in the way of suffering. So he disappears into the hillside by himself, and to make sure that the crowds disperse, he goes one direction, and he forces his disciples to get in the boat and cross from the northeast beach of that lake over to the northwest section called Gennesaret. So that's the setup. And now we see in verse 25 that it's sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., what we call the fourth they would call the fourth watch of the night, and the disciples are having a rough go of it. The wind has picked up against them, it's blowing east, that's the opposite way they're trying to sail west. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to paddle upstream or go against a a strong wind. It's not pleasant. It's too late now. They've been at it for several hours to turn back. Jesus has sent them this way. They're trudging along. They're probably weary and frustrated, right? Even the professional fishermen among them were probably discouraged because it's almost morning and they haven't made landfall. And then, and then, if the day couldn't get any crazier, all of a sudden, they see something coming across the water toward them. And at first they can't tell what it is, then they begin to see its human form. Have you ever been, like, maybe in your kitchen, in the middle of the night, you have to get up get something to drink or something, and you think you see a flash of light in the backyard, and, like, all of a sudden you feel it in your body, like you're, you're aware what's going on, what is that, right? Imagine being on a very large lake by yourself, I mean, with a small group, and then seeing a human form coming towards you across the water. They start to freak out. And they cry out. You can see, it's a ghost, right? And the next thing they know, chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus speaks to them. He speaks words of comfort, revealing that they're not seeing a ghost or a vision or a hallucination, but it's actually Jesus in the flesh trampling on the waves coming to them. And he says in verse 27, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now the story could have ended there with either Jesus passing by and climbing into the boat with them. That's how Mark, that's the amount of detail Mark gives us. Matthew does eventually get us there too, but... Matthew actually adds a little bit of the story, and we're very glad he did. I love this little part of the story. Peter's bit in it. Look at verses 28 and following. Oh, Peter. (laughs) Beautiful, bold, crazy, wholehearted, daring Peter. While the rest of the disciples are just gobsmacked, this whole thing is happening, Peter alone, who is quickly, apparently in the story, is becoming the leader of disciples. He's a natural leader. He says... If it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you on the water, verse 28. Now, we don't know how far away Jesus was. He's close enough for them to have this conversation. And Jesus' response is, no, no, this is my miracle. No, he says, come, come. And so Peter climbs down. We know the boats were very high-sided. He climbs down over this high-sided boat looking at Jesus, and he actually starts to walk toward him. I love how the old commentator John Broadus, one of the founders of Southern Seminary here back in the 19th century, in his great commentary Matthew, he describes Peter in this moment this way. He says, Peter immediately felt the desire that is natural to such bold spirits to do anything which they see others do. And under a sudden impulse of confidence in Jesus, mingled no doubt with his usual self-confidence, he proposed and undertook to walk on the water himself. He's a natural leader. That's 19th century way of saying it, 21st century way of saying it, Peter says, hold my beer. Watch this, basically. <laughs> I mean, that is, Peter is this natural leader. He's, he's like the, that natural leader of group of guys on the camping trip who's standing around the campfire as he takes off a shirt and runs full bore and grabs a vine that turns out to be a snake and lands in the frozen pond or something. I mean, this is the kind of like natural, crazy, bold leader that Peter is. He's wholehearted. The difference is Peter's impulsive and bold action here, it's not, a, it's not just a matter of foolish pride, though. It's a matter of love. He sees the Lord he loves and believes in and cares more about than anything in the world, and rather than being hindered by self-consciousness, which hinders so much of us in so many things we do and what others might think, he just wants to get to Jesus. He believes. His eyes are on him, and he he does it. He actually walks several steps on the water to Jesus it's amazing and then understandably this moment of wholehearted unself-consciousness in this crazy scene he begins to slip because he becomes aware of the wind and waves and what he's doing, and I and I always think here of like Wiley Coyote, which I hope means something to you all. So it's like Wiley Coyote is so set on chasing the Roadrunner that he often would run off a cliff several steps before he realized he was in the air, and then he turns to the camera and looks with his face, and I and that's why I always think of like this is Petey Coyote, like he he's like it's all in until he like becomes aware that he's a human and he's walking on water and he begins to sink, right? And then look at what happens. Peter sinks into the water. He's washed away with the waves. John becomes the lead disciple. And it's a valuable lesson not to be too self confident. No, look at verse 31. <laughs> Immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him. And he says, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? This scene is actually hilarious. If your whole thinking of the Bible is like medieval paintings, I like medieval paintings, but if that's what you think about, you've got to read the Bible and recognize this is this is hilarious. We don't know what Jesus's facial expression was in this moment. We don't. There's no way to know what his tone of voice was. But let me suggest to you that my educated guess is that in light of everything we know about Jesus in the Bible, in the Gospels, that he was a man of love. He was a man of joy. He was a man of care and compassion. Regular people loved him and wanted to be with him, which means he was probably not an angry, dour, reproving person. And so I would suggest to you that I I take Jesus' words here to Peter with his outstretched arm I think they were probably said with a lot of joy and love and maybe even a little laughter, like you would to a friend or a brother. Like the rest of the guys on the camping trip who love the bold one, even though they're always kind of crazy, right? And with laughter and love, they help him climb out of the lake and give him a cup of coffee and put some blankets around him, right? I think that's how Jesus treats Peter here. And the story ends with Jesus and Peter climbing into the boat, then together, the disciples are just doubly amazed. They've seen both Jesus and Peter walk on the water. The only difference is that Peter's wet and Jesus is not, right? But they're, they're probably filled with joy and amazement. And then if there's any remaining doubt that they had only seen a vision of Jesus, that this was like he was a ghost or something, there they both are in the flesh, in the boat. And the wind immediately dies down. And do you see what happens in verses, verse 32? They bow down. And worship. And for the first time of many, they will say what is wonderfully true Jesus, you are the Son of God. If that perfectly kicked corner shot in a soccer game goes into the net, or the masterfully played concerto makes just naturally want to stand up or bow down and say, amazing, how much more this perfect miracle? They've just seen him multiply all this bread. They're amazed. Then he's walked on the water, rescued Peter. They're in the boat. They can do nothing but bow down and worship. It is amazing. I love these stories. These are great stories. And they bring me so much joy. But we can also press into them and even ask more than just how fascinating they are. What is God trying to say? What, what does God want us to take away from these? Well, there are so many great things we could take away from these beautiful stories. We could talk more than we could talk about in one sermon. We could happily and fruitfully think about how Jesus, and many people bring this out a lot of times, that it's it's the goodness of withdrawing from busyness and dedicating yourself to prayer, something that Jesus did and we should too. And next weekend, Pastor Kevin was just talking about that as an opportunity. We could talk about how this is a picture of God's care, really physical care for the provision of people and that he uses the disciples in that and that we as the church continue to do that in the world. That's a, That would be a great message. We can also talk about from the whole Bible perspective how this combination of feeding in the wilderness and crossing water, walking on water, clearly evokes the story of the Exodus. We're going to come back to that in chapter 15. We can talk about these things and many more, but in our remaining minutes, I, I just... I want to draw out two beautiful things for you to ponder with me. Two things. Here's the first one. What I call the revelation of compassion. The revelation of compassion. Now, stick with me for a second as I help you think through this. As we go through the Gospels, I'm so happy to remind us that Every story in the gospels is teaching us something about who Jesus is because to be a Christian is to believe in, to follow this person Jesus. It's not just agreeing to a set of doctrines or even a set of behaviors. Christianity is based on following a person. So that's why the gospels are so important. Every story does that, but some stories, are particularly poignant and concentrated. And I think our story for today is one of the single most important stories in the Gospels. Because we see Jesus multiplying of the bread and fish in the wilderness. That's a remarkable miracle. It shows him as the true Davidic shepherd. It shows him as being like Moses and greater. It shows him as being like Elijah and Elisha, who also multiplied food. But then when that is added to his ability to walk on water, this ups the claims even more. That is, Jesus has already performed all kinds of things, but these miracles together communicate something that is unheard of. Jesus is more than a prophet and a miracle worker. And if there's any doubt about that, look at how the story ends. They declare rightly, he is the son of God, and it results in worship. You don't worship a prophet. You don't just worship a miracle worker. You might honor them, but you don't worship them. And actually the strongest evidence that this is trying to show us this revelation of who Jesus is, is found right smack dab in the middle of the water story. It's in verse 27. Actually, if you count the Greek words on either side of it, it's literally right in the middle of it in verse 27. And even though our English translations um, do the best job they can, it, this, is the, this is just a hard little phrase to translate. Because when Jesus is walking in the water and he greets them, he doesn't just say, hello. Right? Or shalom, or dudes, it's okay. What he says is ego a me, which translates truly as it is I. That's what your translation says. But there's something more going on there that there's just no way to translate clearly. What he says is, I am. That's what it is. He says, I am. And if you know your Bibles, if not, I'm just going to tell you. So now you'll know this is a very, very important thing in the Bible. This is how God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3, for example. And then all throughout, remember, he reveals himself as, I am who I am. And then all throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy, all throughout the prophets, God repeatedly says, God alone repeatedly says, do not fear, I am. And now Jesus does too. And if there's any doubt if this is how we're supposed to take it. All you have to do is go to the Gospel of John, which I call the Gospel for Dummies. It's like it takes all the stuff, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says, if you still didn't get it, oy vey, here's what it is. All right, this is what John, is. if you look at John 6, he takes this idea of Jesus as the I am, and he makes it like the most important thing in his whole Gospel. Like he, he, he parallels this story with them, and then he makes all these I am statements throughout the Gospel, including as... Brother John reminded me, after the first service, at the end of the gospel, when Jesus says, I am in the garden, everybody falls over. Right? This is very significant. So in other words, these stories right here particularly focus our attention on the fact that God is the revelation of, or sorry, that Jesus is the revelation of who God is. As Hebrews 1 says, he's the exact representation of who God is. So here's the question. If Jesus is the revelation, if he's taking, playing the exact same role because he shares the nature of God, what is that God revealed to be like? That's the question. If Jesus is revealing God, what, how is God revealed through Jesus? And the answer is, he's revealed as a God of compassion. Do you see it throughout? It was back in verse 14 when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them. Beyond the verses we read for today in verses 34 to 36 of this chapter, you see him being compassionate and healing all these people. In the wilderness feeding, it is out of his compassion that he feeds them. Notice, when all these people follow him, he's just trying to go on a retreat, He doesn't and he teaches all day, he doesn't say to them, well they should have thought ahead before they followed me out into the wilderness, right? I was trying to get away for retreat. I didn't tell them to follow me. Or he doesn't say, well, it's good for them to have a little hunger once in a while. It helps them realize life's tough and you should pray more. No. He responds with incredible compassion for their need, even though it was their own fault because they were hungry. They were obeying what Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom and then all these things will be added to you. And when you get to the water... With Peter, when he starts to fail, Jesus doesn't respond with harshness. He doesn't say, well, lesson learned, right? Instead, he reaches out his hand, lifts him up, because he is a God of compassion. Friends, as Scripture says and shows, again, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He reveals who God is, and there are lots of things that reveal God, creation and friendship and love and laughter, but nothing reveals God fully like the face of Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, what you see is compassion. I mean, do you remember when the Lord God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain? He came down. God came down in a cloud. He passed by Moses and declared. What did he say? Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving weakness, rebellious, and sin. The Psalms say the same thing in many places. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Friends, there are lots of ways God could relate to humanity. Lots of ways. God could relate to humanity being quick to be angry. He could relate to humanity indifferently. He could relate to humanity aloofly. He could relate to humanity sorry, mechanistically. He could relate to God behavioralistically. He could relate to humanity legalistically, but instead he relates to us in compassion, in abounding love, patience, kindness and joy. And so this is why Jesus is revealed this way, because He is the exact representation of God. How is God? He is compassionate. And this means you, young man or woman, who has maybe found themselves six months or two years or maybe a decade into a marriage that isn't what you thought it was going to be. It's disappointing. Maybe it's frustrating. It's hopeless, maybe even. God cares. He looks upon you and your situation with compassion, and he loves you, and he invites you to turn your eyes to him, to find life and peace and hope, not in your circumstances, but in him. And by the power of the Spirit that is given to those who seek him, to actually, from this compassionate God, find strength to endure and peace and even to learn to grow. God's compassion means that you, teenager, who maybe are dreading to go to school tomorrow because someone is so mean to you or maybe you've gotten yourself into some complicated mess in your relationships and everybody at school is mad at you and they're talking about you behind your back and you just want to cry or punch someone and tell them they're all stupid. Parents, don't forget that's the kind of stuff your teenagers are going through, right? When you're annoyed with them. Not that you'd ever be annoyed with your teenager. <laughs> <laughs> but you teenager who's facing that, God cares. He actually cares about that. And he looks upon you with compassion. And he he sees you and he invites you to cast your anxieties upon him, to turn to him in that moment, because he actually cares. God's compassion means that you middle-aged or older person who've lived long enough to see the mistakes you've made, maybe you've done some really dumb things in your relationship with your spouse or your kids, your business partner, maybe all of those, maybe you, you feel depressed, you feel, you feel paralyzed and hopeless and maybe racked by guilt and regret. God cares he looks upon you with compassion he sees you sinking and drowning and he offers his hand and he invites you to believe that he can restore the years that the locusts have destroyed and you elderly people you who have made it you've earned your money You've made your name. You've raised your kids. You probably have times of joy, but you're also increasingly facing health problems, maybe financial fears. Maybe you're just tired, and you sometimes don't have the zeal or care that you used to have. Sometimes you find yourself just not caring about anything anymore, even though you know you're supposed to, and the world looks so gray. God cares. He has compassion upon your situation, and he invites you to look to him and his promise that he is going to come to restore his kingdom upon the earth and your youth will be renewed like an eagle's and a young lion and you will find peace and rest and meaningfulness. And God's compassion means you, anyone in need, whatever it is, single or married or divorced or in financial wealth or poverty, whatever it is, thinking back to that situation that I asked you to think about at the beginning, what do you really need? What you need is someone who is able and who is compassionate to meet your needs, and this, friends, is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible could reveal himself however he wanted, but he reveals himself in the face of Jesus as compassionate. Now, I said there were two things I wanted to draw out. The first one is the most important one. More briefly, here's the other. This is the second thing I want to draw out from these stories, and that is I want, to, want us to see the disciples' imperfect but beautiful faith. The disciples' imperfect but beautiful faith. One of the clear themes in these stories is that the proper response to this revelation of compassion in Jesus? Is that the the response is faith? You almost can't help it. The belief and trust and allegiance of love toward Jesus. This revelation of compassion invites us to respond not with an attempt to prove our worthiness, or nor with indifference, but with worship. And this beautiful faith, this worshiping, believing allegiance, is always both beautiful and very imperfect. It's always flawed in us. We saw the theme of faith hinted at again in the wilderness feeding story, that Jesus' disciples had tasted the authority and power of God, and then when Jesus calls upon them to to perform another miracle through his power through them, they fail. And even more clearly and aquatically, this is the role that Peter's part plays in our story, the beautiful, bold, imperfect Peter represents us as this wholehearted kind of disciple. I mean, he has the faith to look to Jesus and to partake in a bit of the new creation by that Jesus is bringing a new creation into the world, this power over nature itself. And Peter actually, through his union and his faith in Christ, actually experiences it. And then in the next breath, he begins to sink. And he's, and he's described as little faith. Friends, that should give us so much hope and courage because it's in this combination of both power and weakness that we are given a gracious picture of the life of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You see, if and when you feel like you have very little faith and hope, when you feel like you're failing and flailing and sinking and you barely don't even know if you believe any of this stuff anymore, that is normal. That's what it means to be human, to be limited, to be creaturely, to be sinful, to only be able to see partially and imperfectly, to taste and see God's goodness in one second, and then immediately to quickly forget it and doubt it. Friends, God knows that about you. He knows that about you, and he reaches out his hand and says, come, you of little faith, because he's a God of compassion. And so every week, we end with these elements, and what a great week to do it, where we talk about Jesus taking bread and multiplying it. I don't have the ability to do that, right? We have other pieces of bread besides this one up here, so that there's some for everyone, but it's a great image, a picture of this one loaf that Jesus says represents his body broken that everyone who is a believer here should come and share in. Just like he multiplied, so he multiplies. Here we are 2,000 years later, still remembering this story and now partaking by faith of the same beautiful truth that God provides for his people. So in the bread and in the wine, and I don't know if you noticed, I didn't have time to talk about this, but the very same words Jesus said when he took the bread from the disciples, looked up to God, broke it, and distributed it, those are the exact same words that he uses at the Last Supper says he took the bread, thanked God, broke it, and distributed it. And so, too, here we are 2,000 years later partaking of this same symbolic meal of Jesus giving of himself out of compassion to us. So I'm going to pray. Musicians are going to come forward. If you are a believer in Christ, even if your faith is small, come forward and partake in this as a picture of God's compassion and love and care for you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jamieson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, JonathanPennington.com.